What is up, plant people? It is Tuesday, October 6, 2020, and we're back for another episode of the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives, careers, ambitions, and overall coolness of some great plant people to figure out what makes them tick and what keeps them coming back for more. I'm Vikram Baliga, your host, and as always, I am thrilled to be here with you today. So this is part two of a two-part series. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode with Joe Vaughn, where we talked about the timber industry or introduced the timber industry and talked about a little bit about what he does, uh, go back and listen to that first. You don't have to, but it provides good context for today's episode. But as I mentioned last time, uh, gosh, there were just a lot of uh, stones that I feel like we didn't turn that I really wanted to discuss with Joe, and I just so I asked him to come back for a second episode. And again, he was gracious enough to be with us again today, and and I I think you're really gonna love this one. So uh, again, a couple of quick things before we jump into that: support our podcast partners, a uh, local business called Pecan Ridge. They are a great place to shop for gifts and pecans and all kinds of other good things as we go into the holiday season. So check out pecanridge.com. Use the promo code Plant People, all lowercase, all one word, at checkout for ten percent off your order. Also, check out local LBK. If you are ever in Lubbock, America, it is something you'll want to be a part of. It is $5 a month for a cool membership card that gets you discounts at well over 80 businesses all over town, from movie theaters to restaurants, and it's something that you will really want to be a part of. So there's links for these things in the show notes, as always. If you're interested, go hit them up and go be a part of it. Also, be sure to stick around till the very end because we'll have a trailer today for the Dear Grad Student Podcast, which is just a great show about life in graduate school. So if continuing your education is something you've ever thought about doing, um, this show goes through a lot of the ins and outs of the experience of a graduate student and uh, really gives you a lot of great information about what life will look like through that time in your career. Are you following along with what we do on social media? You should be. You should search for Planthropology on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and uh, just be a part of the community. We even have a cool Facebook group called Planthropology's Cool Plant People. Lots of great discussions, lots of plant goodness. So I want you to be a part of that um, just because I want to get to know you and I love to hear th- your thoughts and your comments and your questions and everything else. Um rate and review the show. I always appreciate that. Um, We are coming up quickly on the one-year anniversary of Planthropology, and I'm really excited. So November 1st is our one-year anniversary, so I'm going to be bringing a lot of content for you in October, at least four episodes, probably some bonus stuff in there too, maybe a live stream or two with some questions and answers and other stuff. So follow along on social media for more information about all of that. Uh, And and if you would rate and review the show on... um, Apple or CastBox or well, I don't know if you can do it on Spotify yet, but really anywhere you listen that you're able, Podchaser for sure as well. Um, that does a lot for me, again, to make sure that I'm headed in the right direction and it helps get some extra visibility for the show as well. Okay, on to today's episode. Uh, I, I don't feel like I need to introduce it too much because Joe introduced himself so well last time, but Joe is a procurement forester in Georgia, and we tackle a lot on this episode that I just wanted to chat with you about real quick before we get into it. So we talk about his day-to-day life and what it's like to be a procurement forester and how much a uh, log weighs that ends up getting turned into dimensional lumber that gets turned into your home. We talk about that. We talk about um, how climate change is affecting his business and how climate change is going to continue to affect his business. We talk about sustainability. We talk about fly fishing. And we get into the issue of um, Joe being a black man in this industry, a person of color in this industry, and what that's like for him. And some of the things on the internet from Twitter to other places that are are striving towards inclusion in different STEM fields and in different industries. And uh, just to be real transparent with you, if you've known me for any time at all, uh, you know, I'm an, I'm an Indian man, a first-generation American, that I, and I never talk about race. I don't. I never have. And I realized a little while ago with everything going on that, that I should, um, that not, not from a negative standpoint, but just from 
uh, a, a place of wanting to make sure that everyone's included, to make sure that everyone feels seen and everyone feels represented. And so I, I hope that doesn't make you uncomfortable. And if it does, I'm sorry. But if it's, it does, that's maybe this is maybe an episode that you really need to hear. Because talking with Joe about um, everything from Black AF and STEM, which is a, a Twitter movement right now, hashtag on Twitter, to just what it's like in the forestry industry for him, um, is is so eye-opening, I think, and I think it, it can be for a lot of people. And Joe does such a great job of presenting the issue from a practical standpoint of, of real solutions, of real ways that we can make change and that we can improve representation. And he talks about his own life experiences um, in, a, in a very earnest and real way. And, and I hope that um, this episode means a lot to you uh, because I'll tell you that it meant a lot to me. And um, it's a lot of fun. We talk about a lot of fun stuff. Uh, but we also talk about a lot of serious topics in a very positive and meaningful way. So uh, get ready for a good one, y'all. And um, strap yourself in for episode 29 of the Plantropology Podcast with Joe Vaughn. This is The Trequel. All right. Well, I'm back today with Joe Vaughn um, from last week. Actually, we just, uh, you know, we had so much to cover and I was really excited to talk timber and trees and my brain kind of went a dozen directions. So uh, Joe was nice enough to come back on and and chat with me again so we can kind of just fill in some of the gaps because I think there is so much to, to what he does that like uh, it warrants, at least in my mind, a second episode. So, uh, Joe, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's been a productive day on my end and uh, just thankful to be here talking with you. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, and again, thanks so much for coming back. Um, just for for anyone that, for whatever reason, is listening to just this episode and not the last one, which if you're doing that, go back and listen to the last episode first. But uh, will you just quickly uh, reintroduce yourself and just uh, uh Tell us like where you went to school, uh, what you do now, just at a, you know, overview level and just. Absolutely. So again, my name is Joseph Vaughn, but please call me Joe. Joseph is my father's name. <laughs> um, I'm currently a procurement forester working in middle Georgia at Interfor uh, Dimensional Lumber Company. And uh, I attended the University of Georgia and went to Warnell, the School of Forestry and that's where I got my bachelor's of science in forest resources, studying forestry. Awesome. Okay, so we're we're just going to jump right in. So the thing that I think we didn't talk enough about last time is what it really means to be a procurement forester, because that sounds like it is a whole lot of things wrapped up into one title. So mm-hmm. um, I guess just take us through, like, what's your day-to-day like? What is your... Uh, you know, when you when you get up and get into work, what kind of stuff are you thinking about and doing? Absolutely. And I would say it depends on the day and the hour of that day. <laughs> but um, there's several things that I may find myself doing. Um, you know, for instance, we might be assessing a timber sale to see if uh, we can work with that landowner or forestry consultant to um, bid and negotiate on their timber so that we can cut it down and send it to our mill where we'll make lumber and other forest byproducts. Um, So that may be us driving through the woods, walking through the woods um, with that forester, with that forestry consultant or landowner. Or I might be doing a timber cruise where I'm actually taking a sample of the acres that we're looking at and counting every single tree, seeing how it meets our mill specifications, which just means, is this tree big enough to go to our sawmill or is it, you know, bad quality where we need to send it to another mill just because they can make pulp and paper out of it. Hmm. Um, So that's one task that I do. We also do harvest inspections or we check on our loggers to see if they're following environmental standards. Um, And that will just look like, you know, walking the track, seeing where that logger has cut down trees, where their heavy equipment has been moving those trees 
up to a processing um, area within that track and making sure I'm not seeing things like oil on the ground, Mm. making sure that they're not dragging um, limbs and stuff into the streams or the creeks, Um, just really making sure that they're protecting the environment, they're doing what they say that they're doing. And we also, as a company, have this Sustainable Forestry Initiative certification where we have laws and regulations that we have to follow. So we just check all those standards and make sure we're meeting the criteria on that harvest site. Wow. That, yeah. So there is, there's a lot wrapped up into that because like, this is, this is going to be a a weird reference, but I was driving through East Texas one time, which is, you know, lots of pine timber out there. Mm -hmm. They, They have a, I mentioned before we started recording that I live in a part of the world where trees are not like, that's not a, we don't see like log trucks going through, you know, Lubbock, America, all that often every now and then, but generally not so much. And so like last time I was in East Texas visiting family, um, I saw a lot of log trucks and I remember thinking like, what is it? Because you know, I'm, I'm all, I've always been interested in, in trees and, and in woodworking and in, in this industry and I, I remember having the thought, like, I wonder what all goes into that. And it sounds like it's everything from like quality control to environmental standards. And I'm sure there's a lot of environmental standards. There absolutely are. Um, and, you know, just kind of to point out the biggest one that I'm always looking out for is something called the protection of streamside management zones. So if there's ever a water source like a river or creek, um, we make sure that we put flagging around that creek that has a buffer so that logger doesn't harvest trees within the streamside management zone or drag any limbs or you know sedimentation can get in the stream. Mm-hmm. And so through science and research, we understand that um, trees really help the, let me see if I can get this right, help the temperature of the water And we know that there's species like fish that live in the water. And if a temperature can rise one degree or one Celsius, it could ruin that um, habitat for them. Mm -hmm. So it's very important for our logging operations, even though we're trying to get an economic value out of this track of timber or this land, we don't want to sacrifice the environmental standards so that we ensure that people are still getting um, clean air, clean water, and also that the wildlife still have a pristine home that they live in. Um, so that's just one example of the environmental standards and the uh, actions we take to protect protect those resources. But there's a number of things we can discuss about that. Oh, sure. Oh, I'm sure we could spend a whole a whole hour on that <laughs> for sure. You know, I, I it's funny you mentioned that. I just saw today on your Twitter a picture of you. Did you just go like, are you just getting into fly fishing? <sighs> Yes, I went fly fishing for the first time at the age of 28. Um, (laughs) It was so much fun. Uh, You know, it just combined my passion for hiking, being outside. And I got to learn about what it's like fly fishing for trout and all the different trout species, something that I've never known about. I've never really had the opportunity to go fishing. Um, So it it was really fun. I've got some recreation out of it. And also just knowing me and how nerdy I am, I got to learn about what I was actually doing and learn about the fish that I was trying to catch. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. And it, it is so much fun. It's so much fun. I'm not very good at it. But it, that, for me, that's not even the point. Like, it's almost just going outside and, you know, standing by or in a stream and enjoying the enjoying the nature. Uh, but it but it does actually put a, a kind of a good point on what you were talking about a minute ago that if we're not careful with some of these riverside ecosystems with from the trees and everything else, I mean, trout are pretty sensitive to, to mm-hmm. temperature change. And so uh, people want to be able to go catch trout and go fish and, and just to have them there. It's not just that they're useful, but the fact that they live there is, is important. So that's, you know, preservation of these, these, these ecosystems is so important for sure. That's for right. Sure. So, okay, so that's that's a big part of your job, right? Then you, you go and you uh, make sure the quality is good. You make sure that all of the rules are being followed, so to speak. So from that point, like once you find a good spot, 
um, or that you make sure that everything's done right. What is the process of like, I don't even know how to ask this question, right? But the process of like going from a tree on a landowner's property to your mill, what does that little process look like? Yeah, that's a really great question and perfectly segues into something new that I've been doing within the last six months. So even before we get to moving a logging crew onto a track, there's a lot of administrative things that I'm required to do. And basically, we're making a paper trail so that we're abiding by all the laws. Um, we're doing what we say we're doing. So I have to do a title search to make sure that there's no lien on the property. Um, we don't want to be harvesting timber and paying a landowner when that money needs to go to pay off their debt with oh. whatever institution that they might be borrowing money from. Um, and then we also have to make sure we check for endangered and threatened species. Again, we want to make sure that we're preserving habitat. We don't want to do anything that disrupts an ecosystem more than we have to. Um, and once we kind of have that administrative workflow in place and we've signed a contractual agreement that's legally binding with a forestry consultant, then we can start thinking about moving a logging crew on that track to harvest the timber. So a logging crew has a loader, um, fellow buncher, a skitter, and they've got personnel that runs those pieces of equipment. And that system is called a conventional tree length system, just kind of getting into the details. But they will cut the tree down. They'll use a skitter to skid the tree to where the loader's at, and the loader is sitting on the landing or the ramp. So that loader will then process that tree stem further, making sure it cuts off the branches, any defects that are in a tree, like a canker, mm. um, maybe crook. Because remember, we want this tree to come to our sawmill and make the best quality lumber that we can. And those defects will impact how much lumber we can make out of that tree. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that loader will then take that process stem along with at least 30 others, depending on how big or small those trees are, and put it on a log truck. So it's basically kind of like your semi, but it's attached to a log trailer. Mm. Um, if you do a Google search, you'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> but on average, you could have a log truck driver delivering that wood to our facility anywhere from 40 to 130 miles. So there's this time element in there as well. Um, we're trying to be as productive as we can, make sure we're supplying our sawmill with the most volume that we can, but there are some natural constraints with that system. So the truck driver arrives at our sawmill and they are greeted by a scaler. And the scaler's job at the sawmill is to weigh in and out the log truck so that we're able to have records of how much volume we're paying the landowner and also how much volume we have to pay the logger for delivering that wood. And while they're also doing that process, they're checking for quality. They're making sure that that is the right log for the right mill. Because <laughs> you'll even have truck drivers sometimes get lost in communication and deliver a load that should not be going to that facility. Oh, wow. So that scaler provides that kind of final double check to make sure you're in the right, right place. And once it passes the scales, that truck will then go under our circle crane, which is kind of like those cranes that you've seen um, rise up concrete slabs or put okay. structures together. Yeah. Very similar. And it will... In one bite, kind of like that claw in the machine where you can never get the prize <laughs> out of, it goes down, pulls all those logs up, and then puts it on top of this circular pile where all the other stems are already located. Um, so that's kind of like the system that I see a lot, that we all see a lot of that log getting cut down or stem getting cut down, getting delivered to our mill. Then once it's at the mill, it gets loaded into the sawmill, and there's a whole lot of different steps that it goes sure. through to be processed to dimensional lumber or two by fours that you may see in your deck, uh, framing of your house, so on and so forth. 
Wow. Yeah, that's that is certainly quite a process. And and this yeah. is a very specific question that I thought of uh while you were kind of talking through that because I think that scale is is hard to like fathom sometimes when we're talking about some of these things. And I think people are used to like okay, I'm going to go to Home Depot and I'm going to buy, you know, mm-hmm. a 10 foot 2 by 4 and that when we think of lumber that's what we talk we, we think about. So when when you're talking about these these stems and these logs that are being transported, like what what size are we talking? How big are some of these pieces of wood? I'm sure they're enormous. Yeah. So I think something that we have so many metrics on how we kind of classify a stem. But um I think the easiest way for people to understand um if we kind of look at how much they weigh, I will deliver a load of wood to our mill. Each stem will be, you know, one ton or 2,000 pounds. And you have 30 of those trees on that load. So you're seeing anywhere from that truck weighing 86,000 pounds up to maybe 90,000 pounds. And there is a legal limit they have to follow on the road. So that's one truck, 30 to 32, uh, 30 to 32 tons. And our mill may consume anywhere from 300 to 500 loads a week. Um, So it's a lot of trees that are being delivered to our mill. That's a lot of trees needed to make sure our mill is running consistently and able to produce lumber at the end of the day. Wow. Man. (laughs) I mean, yeah. So that's like, you know, I I think people are thinking, I don't know. I I may be not giving people enough credit, but you, you think of like a tree and you're like, Okay, it's like my tree in my front yard, but that's that's not really what we're talking about in general. We're talking about very large, very I mean a, a ton or two tons like per log is is a lot. That's a that's big right. big piece of wood. <laughs> it ranges anywhere from half a ton up to one and a half tons is usually what wow. I purchase. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh hang on just a second. I've got a maintenance guy here. I hope nothing's exploding. Just no give me just problem. a second. Okay, just getting back into my train of thought. Okay, so yeah, so that that is uh, like quite a process of getting like from again the the field or the the land to the mill, and then do y'all uh, are y'all selling mostly to like retailers or wholesalers? Do you, you probably don't do like a lot of direct to you know builders and things like that? Do you? I don't think we do, and this is a side of our business that I have not been able to see yet. But from our communication with the sales department, I believe we're selling it to wholesale distributors. So we do not sell directly to Lowe's or Home Depot. We basically sell it to lumber brokers who then sell it on to their customers. Okay. Um, And I just wanted to add, you know, I had mentioned that we purchase anywhere from 300 to 500 loads of of logs Mm -hmm. at our facilities. And kind of applicable right now, we have Hurricane Sally that is just dumping probably anywhere from three to 15 inches of rain on the sites that wow. our loggers are working on. And so, you know, part of my position as a procurement forester, I have to manage that flow of wood and make sure that those logs get delivered. But then you have natural disasters like wildland fires Mm -hmm. or you have hurricanes or tornadoes that can really severely hinder our ability to get that log that's cut in the woods to our mill. Um, You know, this hurricane right now, I think we're seeing that it has reduced um, the delivered loads anywhere from, I would say, 25 to 45 percent. Wow. on average across our across our you know buying region and there's other mills out there that may be seeing upwards of 50 60%. So yeah, that's a lot of numbers to talk about, but let's just put it in our terms. What does that mean? You do not have enough supply to be able to make lumber um that people are really trying to find right now. So if this was a prolonged impact to the lumber supply you will see even more people 
paying higher prices for what lumber is available. Hmm. So again, not only am I a scientist, um, I look at the biological aspects, the social aspects, but I'm also considering the economic aspects of the supply and demand curve. And, you know, I'm trying to ensure that I'm supplying enough wood, um, being trees or logs and lumber to the market so that people can get to their day-to-day lives, building that project in their backyard, um, building a greenhouse or something like that. Sure. So there's a lot of different things that um, trees are used for. And it's um, that's why I like doing what I do. Every single day is different. Um, and it's a really tall order sometimes, but you just make sure you take it day by day and do what you can. Um, you can't beat a wildfire or a hurricane. So you just have to manage as best as you can. For sure. And that, and that's a great, that's a great kind of segue into my next question that I have. And that's, well, there's two parts to this and, you know, you're a scientist and I'm sure this comes up (laughs) in conversations in the business, but you know, the cl- the climate's changing and, and there's, uh, and it seems like for the worse, you know, between, uh, hurricanes that seem to be, gosh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 33 years old, but uh, it seems like they're dumping more water. They're moving slower. They're causing a, a bigger impact today than they used to. And you've got wildflower, not wildflowers. <laughs> they are there wildfires on the West coast. Um, thinking about the future of your industry, uh, you know, between sustainability and just like being able to to keep having lumber to harvest, uh, what what kind of conversations do y'all have about that? I mean, what where do you see as the direction that this industry is going to go and adapt as the climate changes and as just all this craziness kind of seems to continue? That's a really good question, and I would just point out first that you know. We have conversations about what we need to do to keep our industry sustainable at our day job. And also because we live in this industry and it's our, you know, day to day, it's our life. We have a lot of discussions out of the workplace. It's something that certainly weighs heavy on a lot of our hearts. I mean, I was even a wildland firefighter in the past. And what I see now happening out on the West Coast really makes me emotional. And then you have people talking about it that just may not have all the facts or, you know, they're making some, um, you know, snap decisions. But to answer your question, what I believe to make sure that our industry is sustainable, if we're looking specifically at the timber industry or forest products industry, um, you know, the lumber side of things is making sure that we have healthy markets. Hmm. Okay. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, I'm sure we've all gotten an email that says, don't print this email out, save trees. Right. So I don't personally agree with that. Um, (laughs) Trees, we need people to consume paper. Paper is recyclable. You just have to recycle it. Right. And so by using paper, that means we are using wood. We're using timber. Right. So if we don't have a healthy market where people are buying forest products, like paper, like toilet paper, um, paper towels, um, lumber, or even cell phones, because there are forest products, um, the, I believe, cellulose in the screen of an iPhone. You don't have people buying that. You don't have a healthy market. And there's no incentive for a landowner to sit on a massive amount of timber and grow it for people like me to come buy it and make a product out of it. So if there's no healthy markets, kind of segueing into my second threat that I see to that will hinder our ability to keep the industry sustainable is urbanization or um, these lots of land getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So if you don't have healthy markets, landowners don't want to grow trees, And so they're going to develop that land to be the next shopping complex. Um, Maybe they'll have, you know, a dormitorium on it. Um, Maybe you'll have, you know, any sort of storefront that you can think about could be replacing the timberland. And so that's certainly a threat. I think it's one of the biggest threats here in the Southeast and specifically in Georgia, because when that 
land base shrinks where that parcel that someone owns shrinks from 110 acres all the way to down to 10 acres, it doesn't really make economic sense for a logger to go in there and remove a handful of trees on that small parcel. Like we would love to do that, but it's a business. A logger has to make sure that they're making enough money to cover their costs and also make profit. Um, So those are two things that we need to keep in mind when we're trying to keep our industry sustainable for the future. And then not on the business side, or you could argue maybe it is on the business side, is having forward thinking. We are now seeing, I think, across the nation with many different industries that the baby boomers are going to retire. And who's right under the baby boomers? We have millennials and all the other generations. And so there's going to be this gap. Now, I can tell you that our industry was known for not being sexy, that it was, if you get into this work, you're going to be a day laborer, you're going to be out in the forest every single day, you're going to be sweating, you're going to be battling the snakes, Um, uh, you might be getting ticks on yourself, you might be getting cut up with briars. So we need to make sure that we have forward thinking and making sure we have the ability to market what our industry actually is. We need to make sure that we're building that pipeline of talent that you know showcases to a young person like myself that, hey, you can come work in the forest products industry. You don't need to have any experience hunting or fishing or being out in the woods if you enjoy programming or using code we have a job for you where you could be the person that manages a database that has all the pricing information of how we need to buy certain timberland tracks. Or you might have a person that wants to go and be a doctor one day, but maybe they're not really comfortable working with people. You can be a doctor in the forest products industry. You can manipulate the genetics of trees determine how they can grow faster. So those are just two examples of how the forest industry can market what we offer better to those younger generations and make sure they understand you're not going to be a day laborer every single day if that's what you don't want to do. There are other opportunities. So we're doing a lot of work to keep our industry sustainable. Um, and I really hope we you know, showcase those aspects a lot more. And that's something that I'm trying to do through my, um, you know, science communication that I'm doing on Twitter right now. I think that is such a good point you make that like what we do in in agriculture and forestry and uh, horticulture and all of these green industries, it's not like what people have in their brain. Like they're not like running around with an axe on their shoulder and like, I mean, maybe some people do that, but they don't have to. And we are we are modern industries. We are, uh, you know, something that has evolved with the times, or, or we're trying to at least. Mm-hmm. And and so yeah, whether you're interested in in software programming or economics, like th- there is something for you in the green sector. Um, that actually leads me pretty well into what I kind of want to spend the the rest of our time talking about, and that's that's diversity in your industry. Um, and you know, well, I guess what we were just talking about was diversity in types of jobs, but like, I want to talk about diversity in people. So, you know, something that you, um, you, you mentioned on your Twitter page is that you're involved with black AF and STEM. And that's not something we've discussed here on the show before. And I'm really excited to get to talk to you about this. So can you tell us just, uh, an overview of what that is? What is that, that whole movement about? So I had a friend, Tyus Williams, who got me back on board using Twitter. And I noticed one of the hashtags that he was using was Black AF in STEM. Um, And I was really curious about it. And so him and I struck a conversation. I was like, hey, could you tell me about what you're doing here? And from what we discussed and what I believe is this hashtag is a movement to amplify and magnify 
people of color, black people, um, their voice in being um, a STEM major. And it's really important to me because growing up, you know, I just didn't see my professors or my teachers look like me. Representation really matters. Yeah. So even though, you know, I'm tweeting away on, (laughs) you know, Twitter, it's so valuable that I'm sharing this scientific information with other people and I'm being a role model, I hope, for our community of um, black people, um, people of color, just diverse people in general. And, um, you know, this is our way of overcoming some barriers to education. Um, You know, there's not many African-American professors that I know of in forestry. And so I don't have a PhD. So the next best thing for me to do, I guess, is to share my knowledge on a social media platform and get retweets and start conversations and start discussions. That's great. Uh, man, I really love that. And and I, you know, I, I feel like you, you said it best that representation is so important. And having folks, I, I think, I think it's taken for granted by, by some people. Um, how much having folks that look like you in what you do really, really matters, really matters. And, you know, that's something I, I struggled with myself going through school. And, uh, you know, I live in, in, West Texas. And it's like, uh, it, it, it's, it can be a challenge, right? It can be mm-hmm. a real, um, in some ways isolating and, and a little demoralizing at some time at times. And so uh, I like that you're involved with that. I, and ha, are, are there specific challenges that you've seen as, as a, a, a black man in this industry is, is, can you think of times that it's really been a problem? And I'm not asking you to like call anyone out, but like, uh, just, I think, you know, it, we, we have these hashtags and we have all these things out there. But I think what really makes change is what, what leads to change is people's stories and like being able to connect something like this black AF and STEM hashtag to a a, a really smart, intelligent, talented human. Right. So are are there times that you can think of that, like maybe you wish you had had something like this going through school or growing up? Man, how much time do we have? Um, <laughs> let's just put that out there. And I think if you know what I'm talking about, you if you know, you know. Yeah. So, and you know, I'm very tol- tolerant and I'm very open to people. But there's certainly been a number of times where I wish what I'm seeing now was what, like something that was around when I was going through middle school, high school, um, college. And, you know, it probably was, um, but I just was never connected to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the first thing I'll say that this movement, I'm providing a lot of value to it, but it's providing so much more than I could ever put into it. And what I mean is I get to be unapologetically myself. I get to be Joe. There's no hiding my thoughts, my feelings, um, I can be vocal about the challenges that I have, you know, had to overcome the obstacles Mm -hmm. that I face. And so, you know, just for example, I'm a procurement forester. I work in Georgia. um, And there are times where I'm traveling in the middle of the woods, no cell phone service. And because I don't see myself, I don't see other black people on some of these logging crews and the other timber industry um, positions, be it um, another forester or consultant or a landowner, I sometimes don't know if I'm supposed to be there. And that threatens my safety. Um, You know, I don't like playing the victim card. And I know this conversation is really hard for some people that, you know, have not experienced that. But mm-hmm. this is a reality that I face and I just share it to, you know, hopefully help people challenge their own assumptions um, when they're dealing with someone that looks differently. Um, there's been a handful of other things that have, I wouldn't say have gone wrong, but have certainly put me in a position where 
I really just hope and pray that I get to go home that night. Sure. Um, so that's not to say that I don't think that this industry is rewarding or it's ready to have me, but there are certainly things that we can improve on. Um, not everyone has the same experience in nature and environment, and we really need to do a better job of recognizing that. Um, you know, answering your question some more. I mean, I just told you that I went fly fishing for the first time at yeah. the age of 28. I went hunting for the first time at the age of 28. Yeah. And I've worked in Wyoming. I've lived in Michigan. I have fought fire all over the West Coast. I live in Georgia. I've lived in the foothills of Virginia. So how come I've never done these things? I have not seen anyone that looks like me that are doing those things. And also my parents just, again, have never done anything like that. Sure. So why is this important? I would make the example or connect this with what I currently do as a procurement forester. When we are trying to entertain our clients and conduct business meetings, um, we like to find a common ground. You know, that's very important in business. Yeah. And, you know, we're all different. We have different perspectives and backgrounds. But if you're able to find that common ground with that person, you're going to bond and build a relationship a lot easier. So a lot of the times we get invited or invite our clients or customers on hunting trips, on fishing trips. Um, and that makes me uncomfortable because I've never grown up around guns. Um, you know, I don't want to look like a fool when we're trying to make a million dollar deal and I've never been fishing before. Sure. And so I'm put into a position sometimes that I don't feel very comfortable with. But I will say the one saving grace that I've had through all of this is I've always had good people around me that, you know, don't make fun of me for these things. Right. Um, you know, so again, it's that support system that I need around me to be able to navigate those things. Um, so I hope that answers your question without getting too political, but it's certainly a real thing. No, no, no. And I, it, that, that wasn't at all. That wasn't at all. And I, I think, no, you, you make such a good point. And, you know, there's, for one, there is, there is a lot of work to be done in this industry. Uh, uh, I think like top to bottom, we need to be, and, and I'm talking green industry in general. Uh, we, we need to be more inclusive. We need to be uh, more supportive of, of people of color and people of different, you know, creeds and, and uh, genders and orientations and everything that goes into that. And, and there's still work to be done, but I, I, it makes me hopeful to have people like you out there doing it uh, and, and fighting for inclusion, all those things. That's, that's such a, uh, I'm sure that feels to you like a big task. Uh, maybe you don't really think of it in those terms because you're just, you know, uh, just, just from talking to you twice, you're an outgoing guy, you know, you, you say in your Twitter that you, you've never met a stranger. And I think that's a hundred percent true, right? You're friendly and outgoing, but I think that, um, I, I think that this, this whole movement, this black AF and STEM and everything that, not just that, but everything that that represents on a larger scale is so important. And I'll just say like on a, uh, just from a, a Twitter standpoint or social media standpoint, I have found some of the coolest people to follow just by following that hashtag. Mm -hmm. like, Agreed. Some of the coolest people. Uh, Tyus is great. Your, your account's great. Uh, one of my favorite things, and I was talking to a friend about this the other day is uh, uh, Jason Ward. I believe he's the birder, correct? Yeah. One of my favorite things on the internet right now is him going to a new city and saying, what's good, whatever city and pe like he's just saying hello, right? Yeah. And people like giving him recommendations of like where to go. I it, that cracks me up every time. It's so funny. And I and I I would just say that you know that's so neat that we can use social media to build a community. Um, you know, because I've moved around so much in my life. Um, you know, because of my dad's work, I've never really been able to transplant myself in an area for very much time. So mm -hmm. I didn't really get to connect with people that looked like me or who had the same passions as I did. And now I'm making up for that through these hashtags. You know, you asked me a year ago if I believe that was possible and I would have said no. 
But I took that leap of faith and I just started, you know, getting on social media, talking with these people that look like me, and then just realizing that, hey, there are other people that look like me out there that love the outdoors, that want to talk about it all day, want to nerd out about it, and just, you know, see how we can make this more inclusive. Um, And that's such an amazing thing. Not easy, but we do have you know, I guess a movement behind that to just showcase that like, hey, we are here, we have a voice, Um, you know, we're not excluding anyone. No. We just want to be at the table along with everyone else. And I will say, uh, uh, before we kind of start wrapping up, that I think that's one thing that has been done, at least in my opinion, has been done very well, is that it is not exclusive. That uh, anyone who wants to come and like... Uh, be involved in these discussions are, are welcomed. And I think that's so cool. And that sends a strong message, right? From a, a group of people that has been excluded for so long to go forward and be inclusive. That is the kind of message that I think does, does wonders. And I, I, you know, I applaud what y'all are doing with that whole thing, that whole movement. I, I love it. Oh, I can't even take credit for it. I mean, I'm just one of the people on the train and I'm really thankful for people like Tyus who, uh, you know, have opened these doors for me. And even Jason Ward, uh, there's a lot of good and great people out there that have recognized this need and um, have just taken the bull by its horns and have tackled it. So um, I'll just continue contributing in whatever way I can. And, um, you know, on this topic, what I would recommend, because, you know, I've been asked a lot, you know, being, I mean, I think I know now I've met, you know, five or six, maybe 10 black foresters within the last year. And I started this work into the natural resources right out of high school back in 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. And I'm just now meeting other black foresters. Right. That should say something. Yeah. And so if we want to see more people like me in a forestry job or be able to share these things, Two things that I would recommend, um, and I think I've said this earlier, is challenge the assumptions that you're making about people that don't look like you, that don't have the same background or perspective as you. Um, You know, I think that there has been this myth that Black people weren't interested in working in the environmental community. But I think there's enough statistics and facts and just people that are passionate all over social media and in real life that want to do this work, that we find this work very, very valuable. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I've mentioned that in the past, when people have come to me, um, you know, really white people coming to me like, hey, what do I need to do differently? And I mentioned that they just kind of see like, well, that's a divide. Um, I don't really (laughs) want to do that. And so the other thing that I would recommend is that force yourself to find the commonalities. Yeah. We all love nature. We all want to do what we need to do to protect nature, to dedicate ourselves with nature. And that commonality among all other ones will help you build that relationship, will get you past those barriers. Um, and that's just worth its weight in gold. That's something, two very actionable things that you can do that won't take a whole lot of work. Man, I can't even actually think of a better place to kind of leave this. That That is the the best take-home message I could think of is that uh, find find common ground and, and make the effort. <laughs> uh, that That's great. Um, Man, Joe, that was that was a, a quick 40 or so minutes. I, I really appreciate that. Is there anything else you want to mention before we kind of wrap up? That's, uh, you know, since I've got you here one more time. No, I think we hit everything. I really appreciate the time. This is a really, really fun. And again, I just appreciate you letting me talk about some of these tough subjects and uh, giving me a platform and everyone else a platform. Um, I love what you're doing, just like I said before. And I can't wait till uh, the next shows come out. Man, I appreciate it. And uh, again, uh, if you're out there listening, make sure you go uh, follow Joe on Twitter. I'll put his links and everything in the show notes. Follow Black AF and STEM. Even if, if that is the only thing you step out of your comfort zone to do, just to go follow a hashtag on Twitter, 
I promise you won't be disappointed. I promise you will not be disappointed by the really cool people you'll find. So thanks for listening. Um, Thanks for sticking with us. Again, these are hard conversations, but they're conversations we all need to be having. So uh, take care and we will see you next week. Yeah, so I don't actually know a way that I can end that better than Joe did. So I'm not really going to try, except to say that you should put yourself out there, meet someone new, and uh, maybe try to put yourself in their shoes and just be more inclusive in your life. Thanks so much to the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science, as always, for their support. This would not be possible without them. Uh, Like, rate, review, subscribe, do all the things that you normally do for a podcast that you enjoy. And I hope this is a podcast you enjoy. Send me your feedback, send me your comments, ideas for new episodes, whatever else you can think of. If you want to support the show, hit up patreon.com slash planthropology. And again, you can find us on any of the social medias. Uh, I've got lots of content coming at you this month. So we'll see you again next week with an episode all about pecans and the pecan business from our partner, Pecan Ridge. So as I said earlier, stick around just another minute or so for a trailer to the Dear Grad Student podcast, which starts right about... Hi, I'm Alana, and I'm a fourth-year PhD student. I'm more than likely re-editing that manuscript for the 22nd time, or maybe I'm in my fourth Zoom meeting today. Who can tell? But mostly, I'm probably working on my podcast. It's called Dear Grad Student, and it's a podcast for grad students to celebrate, commiserate, and support one another through grad school. Each week, I interview other grad students and academics about their experience from imposter syndrome, psychom, dealing with mentors, racism in academia, or, you know, all the other joys that come along with grad school. Not a grad student? Maybe you're thinking about grad school. Maybe you just finished and you really want to reminisce about the painfully glorious days. Either way, I think you should come check it out. You can find the podcast at deargradstudent.buzzsprout.com, twitter.com slash deargradstudent, or on your favorite podcast app. New episodes are posted every Monday. And until next time, warmest regards, best wishes, sincerely, Alana. Alana.